Welcome, 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 welcome. I didn't know know I was on an episode of bloody um, Oprah. (laughs) 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 You get a free welcome. We all get a free welcome. Welcome. Welcome to GCP Life, episode number 49 for the 22nd of September, 2023. GCP Life is sponsored by Kazna, and at Kazna, we make your Google Cloud solutions possible. And I'm your host, Stephen Bancroft. On today's show, Mom, it happened again. Google is in hot water. Are we wasting money on cloud? And we bring you up to date on all the Australian security breaches. Plus, What's Curian got to say about all this AI stuff in the AI wars? But before we get to any of that, I want to introduce the co-host of the show, Ian Brown. How are you, Ian? I'm good, Becky. How are you, mate? Good, good, good. Uh, I'm going to have to do a couple of edits on that intro. I didn't hit yeah. it as smoothly as usual. <laughs> it, w- it wasn't your usual smooth sailing. <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, but that's fine. We can fix it in post, as they say. We can yep. fix it in post. <laughs> Um, what have you been up to during the fortnight? Oh, mate, I've been working furiously on this Macedon box and uh, yeah. or, or Cloud Run instance, I should say. And we hit a, we hit a bit of a hurdle in that um, we don't have a mail relay of any description inside of Casna, oh, so no. so every man his dog is signing up to external providers to you to to accomplish that that task for their particular mm. projects, and so. I hit a snag when I signed up. I signed up to. I was doing exactly what everybody else does. I signed up to uh, um, SendGrid, and it instantly blocked me. Yeah. So I was like, oh, okay, righto, right. I'm going to have to come up with a different solution here. So I came up with the mail relay, and then I found out that uh, of all of the brands inside of Mental Group, um, everybody does this same thing of signing up to various different providers. So. I've put it forward to the uh, Metal Group operations people that we should have a dedicated relay, authenticated relay per brand so that we can all use that as opposed to having hundreds of them. Yeah, right. Yep. Yep. A sanctioned way to to forward email out of your project. That's it. So no more signing up to external providers. You just like if you need to because a customer is using that and you need to develop the the API for it, then fine. But if you're just sending email out of a project, use the relay. Yeah, yeah. Because, yeah, we're going to need to send an email for when all these people, thousands of people sign up to a Mastodon server. That, that's to, exactly right. To, for, for their, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we got, uh, we got approval to do it in production um, yesterday. Oh, mate, you have been working hard on it. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so I'm in the process of building all the Ansible playbook for it and, uh, yep. and getting it up and running. Right, because we do everything as infrastructure as code around here. Yep, yeah, there's no manually building stuff, although in my defense, I haven't built a Postfix relay in some years. So mm-hmm. I was working off a, an old uh, bit of documentation I had from oh, probably 10 years ago. Right, of the, doing the old manual way of stepping through. Manual yeah, yeah, way yeah, of yeah. stepping through it. So I refresh my memory about where yeah. I've got to go and what I've got to do and all that, um, and getting, um, getting 
Pam connected into MySQL, where all the all the credentials will be stored um, and encrypted, and getting Pam um, connected into that and and get it all authenticated via SASL. Mm. Right, but doing it uh, in the Ansible way. Doing it in the Ansible way, that's right. Mm, mm, yeah. Mm, mm. So slowly building out the playbook as I go through it, and I've, yep. I've rebuilt that box. I think this is the third time I've built that box now. Beautiful though, blow it away, hit it, hit it again. Yeah, yeah, yep. works every time. That's it. Well, um, and besides that, we've been furiously beavering away on GCP Life Live. We have. Um, you uh, you may have seen some uh, some comms go out uh, on the socials, particularly on LinkedIn. That's that's where we're focusing everything, uh, and you will see um, that. Uh, yeah, we've got we've got. We've got pretty much everything lined up now. Um, we know. Uh, I think. I think I mentioned last week. We've, we've got the panel. We've got uh, Trent Misford from Google. We've got Troy Beebe. We've got uh, Lizzie Reed uh, from Casna. Uh, Troy's also from Casna. Uh, you and myself, Ian, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, a dish and D will be helping out on the side. They're from Casna, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, we. Uh, our content planning is coming along, <laughs> but uh, it'll be, I, I think, uh, you know, it's just set some expectations. It'll be the show in live format. So, yeah, that's exactly right. Um, yeah, and there'll just be a little, a little, you know, a few fun and games go, to go along with it, and it'll be good to see everyone in person, and uh, it will be recorded, so it'll go into the stream, and everyone will get to hear it um, uh, when it comes out the following week. No edits. Uh, no edits. No, we won't be able to edit the intro. <laughs> won't be any fixing it up in post, mate. <laughs> no, it's uh, it's live, right? That's what it's all about, live. What's <laughs> um, it all? Just a little bit more element of fun, yeah. Um, if I make a mistake, hey, you make a mistake yeah. and, and you have a laugh about it. That's that's fine because no, everyone's there for the same thing, right? That's that's what it's all about. It's all about Google Cloud. And it's all about having a community event. Yeah, that's right. That's it. But uh, just before we get on to the show, um, Google, uh, a little bit of hot water. Yeah, so, <laughs> and, and this, is, this is not the first time this particular topic has come up, but uh, Google's, the, the US government is, um, is in a little bit of hot water. Uh, sorry, has got Google in a little bit of hot water about mm. how, they, um, how they've ensured that they are the default server, um, search provider on mobile devices and browsers across uh, the board. Like, uh, this again? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah literally, this, this again. So This again. Um, and and it's, it's interesting because you've got DuckDuckGo, Microsoft, and Yahoo mm. are among the list of competitors who are watching this trial very closely. Yeah, of course, yeah. Um, and DuckDuckGo has said... Uh, the Google makes it unduly difficult to use DuckDuckGo by default. Um, so we're glad this issue is finally having its day in court. Honestly, I've never tried to change the search on my phone. Is it that difficult? I don't know. Never done it. Never done it. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I have changed the search on my browser. Um, yep. And I, I must say that when, when you're using a, an enterprise managed version of Chrome, Changing the default Google search to Google AU is a pain. It is a right pain. So, but eh, it is what it is. Yeah. Um, yep. It's just just that uh, every time you do a search, it assumes that you're interested in stuff that's in the US, and I'm very rarely. Yeah. So the story is um, 
the United States will argue Google didn't play by the rules in its effort to dominate online search in a trial seen as a battle for the soul of the internet. <laughs> it sounds like a horror story in the making, Very doesn't it? <laughs> passionately worded article, this one. <laughs> the, US, the US Justice Department is expected to detail how Google paid billions of dollars annually to device makers like Apple, wireless companies like AT&T, and browser makers like Mozilla to keep Google's search engine atop the leaderboard. Now, in the Mozilla argument, if they'd not done that, we would not have the Firefox browser. That's, That's right. That's basically what was funding Firefox for, exactly for years right. and years and years. Yeah, And, and it's exactly the same with uh, before Microsoft brought up uh, Bing or created Bing. Um, Google's a default search engine in, in Internet Explorer. And now there's a term that makes me shudder. And... Um, <laughs> And now it's not because, you know. Just, just, just process that for a yeah, minute. Yeah, like, let's just process The it. meta layers yeah. going on there. <laughs> Interestingly, I logged into a Citrix server today and the default search engine on that is Internet Explorer, oh, which nice. scares me. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the, the US um, Department of Justice may run into a problem and it's because Google's kind of insulated because they're offering this service for free, right? So how... Where does the anti-competitive law fit if you've just given your service away for free? How can that be the case? Yeah, I'm not right. really sure. I, I, like, yeah. I am not a lawyer, um, as is mm. fairly evident. Uh, so I'm not really sure how that plays into their, um, into their hand. But, uh, but yeah, it's, it's certainly an interesting case. Uh, the, the, the article says here it'll be a major case, particularly for major tech companies. Uh, Google, Apple, Twitter, and others, uh, which have grown to have an outsized role in our in our uh, in near, nearly all our lives. Mm, absolutely, um, and and just just harking back to the the eighties and the nineties, uh, what we mentioned at the top is the AT and T breakup in eighty two is credited with paving the way for the modern phone industry. While the fight with Microsoft, everyone knows about that famously in the 90s, is mm-hmm. credited with opening the space for Googles and others on the internet. Yeah, that's it. You know, although to be fair, I think it's Microsoft's stubbornness with Internet Explorer 6 that didn't do them any favours and, and opened the way for Chrome. Oh, that's like, exactly right. That was really it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'll link that one in the show notes. Um, but on a similar vein, um, we, we've also got um, ex-Google exec acknowledges aggressively seeking exclusive mobile deals. Yeah, again, exactly the same thing. So, the uh, the US government is, is still investigating Google here. Um, so, the, the opening paragraph says... The US Justice Department has sought to show how Google did all it could to get people to use its search engine and build itself into a $1 trillion search and advertising giant on the second day of a once-in-a-generation antitrust trial. And the, the ex-Googler, Chris Barton, um, who was with Google from 2011 to two, uh, sorry, 2004 to 2011, um, was questioned about the billion-dollar deals, and he said... Uh, the number of Google executives working to win default status with mobile carriers grew dramatically while he's with the company. Mm. Now, dramatically is not really a, a number. So Yeah, but look at, the, look at the period, 2004 to 2011. Wouldn't it be fair to say that the number of mobile phones 
and the number of carriers generally grew dramatically during that period. Oh, 100%. Right. That was the, that was the, the impetus that kicked it all off. I mean, what, Facebook was 2005? When was, um, when was Google itself? It was 2000 and... Uh, we should know this. Yeah, we should. Do. We should. Do. <laughs> I thought it was just slightly before that, two thousand and two ish. I think. Yeah. Oh, actually, might have, the company was. I think around since ninety eight. Um, but but you know, if, uh, uh, cameras on phones was was just around that period as well. So that was the boom of of you know getting into this position that we're in now. Yeah. Uh, that 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 what what, what are we talking there? Eight 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 year period, uh, seven year period. Yeah. Well, you you look at. So 2004, I was just out of the military by that stage, so I was probably using a like an Ericsson, little tiny Ericsson phone on 2G. Um, wouldn't have I wouldn't have probably had 3G at that stage because I don't think it was out yet. But mm, mm. I mean, there's there's not a huge amount of of data on the phones back then. They were just used for phone no. calls. But certainly in the US, are a little bit ahead of us. Yeah, I had a Nokia N95. Oh wow! I don't so. The thing with the Nokia N95, it was one of Nokia's last sort of grand phones, I guess you could call it. Mm. Um, it, it had the, the matrix, press the button, and it would, oh, no, you didn't press the button. It had a slidey face yep. on it. It would slide down, uh, and it had a full LCD s- display, and what you do, you'd slide it down, and that would expose the buttons behind it, and you could press the buttons like that. Or you slide it up, actually, and you could still see the screen as you slid it up. But it had... Uh, the GPS, uh, it could play music, it could it could do all these things. It was right on the cusp of a, a touchscreen smartphone. Yep. And then and then the iPhone came out and just destroyed everything. Yeah, well, that's right. <laughs> yeah. And that was about that time too. It was, it was about that time, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, so another interesting one there, I'll link that on the show notes. But uh, let's get on with the news items. All right, uh, I had to had to just get on with it there, Ian. You know, yeah, yeah. we don't muck around here on GCP <laughs> Life. Uh, <laughs> smash through it. Uh, that's smash through it. Um, ANZ, uh, ANZ, as in Australia and New Zealand. First, first news item here off, off the top of the off the off first cab off the rank is um, apparently we're spending too much on cloud. <laughs> uh, there's a there's a black hole. Uh, ANZ, as in Australia and New Zealand companies, are contributing to a Three hundred and twenty billion US cloud utilization black hole as they struggle to activate investment commitments, security and guidance, despite ramping up cloud spending in recent years, according to this cloud radar report that came out recently. Yeah, this is this is huge. Like three hundred and twenty billion US is a lot of money. Just floating around, doing yeah. nothing. Wasted, and yeah. the, the the numbers here that they quote are, are phenomenal. So more than three in five, or sixty three percent of the two hundred and eighty three enterprise leaders surveyed by Infosys in, in Australia and New Zealand reported they were using less than half of the cloud capacity they had committed to, and that this was despite two in three increase in cloud spend in the last year, yeah. um, which is still sixty eight percent. With even more planning to increase spend next year, at a at a rate slightly below the global average, so next year. Yeah. So, sorry. Go. So, so yeah. It's, so, so it seems to me like there's been all this optimism. You know, we're going to move all this stuff to cloud. Blah 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 blah. It's going to be fantastic. And I don't know what they've done. 
when they say committed, it's a bit. I don't quite understand. That seems like a syntax error to me because if you're, how do you? Unless you're doing something like committed use discounts, um, you're not. You don't really commit funds to cloud, right? It's because it's an operational expense. Um, but the, but the story, the article does say their optimism and success in securing funding has led to overinvestment in cloud. Yes. While they could be better off using the resources they already have more efficiently. Yeah, so, so I, I do read this as as companies have committed to um, to certain spends in cloud providers, and and we all know that all the cloud providers have CUDs and um, and can lock you into uh, an amount of money spent. So maybe that's what it is. Yeah, and I think yeah. I think the biggest issue here is not so much that. Cloud provider, uh, so that businesses are not utilizing that. I think the issue here, and one that we're actually, oh, so Casner is very um, aware of, is that we go to a customer and say, hey, look, we think that it's going to cost you roughly this amount of money to run this said application stack, whatever it might be, in Mm -hmm, Google mm -hmm. Cloud. And then we come in and do our thing and optimize it to the point where that customer is now spending twice as much as it's actually costing. Now, we have one customer like that at the moment that, right. that is doing that, and they're actually ramping up their spend in, in Google to actually meet those committed use discounts or their committed spend. So I think Right, so they're bringing, they're bringing other stuff across that's right. to try and fill that, backfill that gap. Yeah, and, so, yeah, yeah, and it's right. still less than what it would cost them to run this same thing on-premise. So to go back to that point, then why didn't they do that? Why didn't they make it more efficient on premise? Well, there's only, I think I know the answer to this. There's only a certain amount uh, of efficiencies you can get with on-prem infrastructure yeah. before you start needing to use that elasticity and yeah, um, yeah, yeah. and cloud service model. I'm going to say because they didn't have to. Oh, that right? too. They, they'd already spent the money. And it's kind of the lazy way out, right? Mm. Like they spent the money, ah, whatever, we don't have to optimize it. As soon as you put it in the cloud and you actually see the dollars for real draining out of your bank account every month, suddenly there's an urgency to optimize it, right? Yeah, that's that's probably a fair fair summation as well. Mm. I know that and, and of course the other the other part of that is a lot of a lot of businesses, certainly those that are committed to staying in a data center. Their operations people don't really see the money it costs to buy that infrastructure. Um, I had one very famous security person said to me, "It costs us. We can do it better, faster, cheaper, and more securely on premise." And I disagreed wholeheartedly because what they didn't take into account was the million dollars that they'd spent on the infrastructure just to run that one application. Yeah, and that's capex yep. cost. That's that's out the pocket. It's that's- gone. Upfront capex costs that's depreciated over you know x number of years. You'll yep. never get that back. Never. Right. Um. Yeah. All good points. Uh. And this article does go on to say, uh, and this segues into that. As a result, almost four in five, seventy eight percent of Australian, New Zealand enterprises have more than three cloud providers. Right. And we talked about this recently with like cloud cloud cross connect and things mm-hmm. like that. Um. With uh, with more than half of the global enterprises, fifty three percent, saying they struggle to monitor costs in the environment. Now, that like coming from Google Cloud, that's like mind blown. I mean, it's not hard. 
I don't. You you get a you get a you get a pretty comprehensive dashboard of where all your costs are, mm. and you can pretty easily go to straight to where the big spenders are and and hit those ones on the head pretty easily. And then and then even more than that, uh, Google has the the recommender, which recommends where you can reduce the cost of infrastructure, or and conversely where. Systems are sitting at like high CPU and memory utilization where you can up that to get better performance out of them. Yep. Yep. It goes both ways. Yeah. 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 Um, but they do also go on to mention instead um, that costs costs aren't really the main reason anymore um, to get moved to cloud. Uh, it's growth and transformation that are the most common motivations, which I think we touched on the whole transformation thing there a minute ago. Yeah. Uh, and of course, growth is great as well, right? I mean, Capacity planning, pff, you yeah. hardly even need it anymore, right? No. You just just grow as you need it if your app's written properly. And that I think the the thing here that uh, a lot of people don't understand when they when they're in that data center mindset mm. is that if you don't need that gear, you just get rid of it. Yep. If you if you've got a data center full of gear, and all of a sudden you don't need half the half the hosts that you've got in there, what are you going to do with them? You, You're stuck you've with them. got to go through the whole process of getting them out of the rack and disposing of them, and then yep. yeah, it's it's a mess, right? It is. Um, and then in yeah, six months, in six months' time, you might need them again. Yep. I, I, you know, even the project I, I might, you know, projects I've worked on, um, you know, oh, software defined networking. Oh, we want to test something. I'll just spin up a network, hmm. do a test, right, and we just shut it down when we're done. Just destroy it. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, okay. Well, just, that's easy. <laughs> so, yeah. And, that, and that's uh, what I did with this Postfix relay. I, I've, yep. I've spun that up and down a heap of times to make sure that as I'm building out that Ansible playbook, I'm actually building it correctly the entire way through. Yeah, nice, nice, nice. All right. Well, speaking of building things automatically, um, introducing Infrastructure Manager, provision Google Cloud resources with Terraform. Yeah, so this this was announced at Next. Uh, it was one that we didn't get to cover in last episode, but uh, mm. it was one that I really wanted to because I love it. I think it's fantastic. It is Google's version of Terraform Cloud, for want of a better analogy. Yes, that's how I read it too. It's Terraform Cloud. Now, will this give you the compute to run Terraform? I assume it's it up in uh, a container. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm assuming it costs to do this. I haven't actually played with uh yeah, sense. We're talking fractions of a cent oh, of to, course. to run you. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And and if it's anything like cloud build, I mean, you get a certain number of minutes free anyway. So yeah. if you're only running a little tiny environment, then it probably doesn't cost you anything. Yeah, you get 500 million executions a month or something yeah. free like that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> one billion. <laughs> um, I, uh, I've got my... Um, I run Proxmox here at home. I, I build the whole thing out with Terraform, and I've got a runner in that uh, Proxmox that just you know GitLab, GitHub hooks back to that, and the runner runs here. Um, works fine. I've never had a problem with it, but I am a little nervous about having the runner on prem. Mm. Um, although I suppose I'm going to have to do some network trickery to get the runner to come back into it. It probably does make sense to have it on prem, but. Um, this potentially could replace that, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so, look, it's it's all the normal things that we use on a day-to-day basis, Terraform, 
Um, now, I do believe it's built on the open sourced version. Um, Interesting. Yeah, so, yeah, so yeah. opentf.net, I think it is. Um, or yep. maybe it's opentf.org, I can't remember now. Uh, because, because HashiCorp has changed the licensing model on Terraform itself. That's right. So it was forked. The, the last open source version was forked and became OpenTF. OpenTF. They have said they're going to maintain compatibility, though. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, look, it's um, resource lifecycle management, um, infrastructure management, streamlined IAC. Um, so you can build all the things that you build now with Terraform. You just do it using Google's um, infrastructure manager and yep. – and complete integration with the Google Cloud ecosystem, which we yeah, expect yeah. by default. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the thing. That's the thing because it's always been a pain in the neck. How do you how do you get Terraform running and spin it up? And there's like umpteen dozen ways to do it. Um, this will give us a standard approach. And and when you've got multiple people on a project, uh, and you and I and and uh, the previous co-host of this show, we we've done this a few times where we've all gone to run something at the same time. And the lock is the Terraform lock is there, so we can't run. And we're like, "Hang on, what's going on here?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. Be nice to queue them all up, right? That's right. Do, 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 yeah, have that manage it for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a good one. I think uh, I think our GCP Life repo, the way that's run, we should move that over into this. Oh, I'm looking yeah. at it already. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, good, 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 good. All right, let's take a look at this new Google Chrome feature, uh, which. Doesn't seem to be without a little bit of controversy. Um, Google makes private sandbox generally available in Chrome. Um, got an article here from Silicon Age where they're talking about it. And to take a quote from there, privacy sandbox likewise enables brands to determine customers' areas of interest. However, the technology does so without providing access to user browser histories as third-party cookies do. According to Google, the result is improved consumer privacy. Mm. So, what do we what do we know about this so far? Well, we know that it's uh, so. This has been brought about because uh, the big browsers, um, the the Mozilla Firefox and the likes, have blocked third party cookies, which yep. obviously cripples yep. Google's advertising business. Mm. Right, so Google's come up with this way around it. Now, you and I, uh, you sent me a video from um, Gardner Bryant, who's one of the YouTubers that that is super privacy focused and and oh, yeah. very very anti Google. Um, if it, if I'm being brutally honest, yeah. uh, and no, I agree. No, he is. <laughs> he went on a what was it a twenty minute rant um, <laughs> in his video, <laughs> but uh, but he says that. That privacy sandbox is an API that's now being built into Google Chrome that then allows um, companies to access Chrome uh, and pull data out of it. So they get access to your machine, which just just for that sandbox, though. Yeah, just for that sandbox. So I mean, yeah. yes, that's <laughs> <laughs> we can we can say that tongue in cheek, and we can say that honestly as well. Um, so I'm sort of in a, in a bit of two minds about this. The other article that I found was a bleeping computer article where they showed the uh, settings for this. And the settings have two buttons down the bottom. One button says got it and the other button says settings. So 
the complaint in this article is that both buttons enable privacy sandbox. You can't get out of it. Um, it's just what you allow in the ad topics that it uses. So it uses PubSub in the background as ad topics and that, that data just streams out of your machine. Right. So Chrome is going for more memory usage. Going for more memory usage, yeah. So <clears throat> Google, Google is rolling out the API alongside new privacy controls for Chrome. This is what we're talking about, right? Yep. According to the search giant, the controls will enable consumers to manage what data privacy sandbox collects about their areas of interest. Consumers are also gaining the ability to block websites from using the technology to deliver ads. So, I mean, just on a cursory glance reading that, uh, if I get that level of control, that sounds all right to me. Yeah, looking at the, looking at the screenshots that uh, Bleeping Computer have got in their article, um, really the, the options there are ad topics, um, suggested or site-suggested ads and ad measurement. And so you can turn ad topics on or off. Um, you can block topics you don't want shared with sites. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can, you can, um, and then sites and advertisers can understand how ads perform based on the ad measurement. So there's not, I mean, there's not a huge amount of options in there at the moment. I'm sure that will potentially get fleshed out in the future. Yep. Yep. Uh, but I'm just not sure how I feel about this one just yet. Yeah, I think we need to see how this washes out. Um, now, they're not mentioning anything here about Manifest 3. Um, is it Manifest 3 or Manifest 2? That's when we, they basically, we're removing the ability to put plugins into Chrome oh. because, because that's, uh, of course, I mean, I imagine all of our listeners are running multiple ad blockers in Chrome, so you're blocking the ads anyway. Yeah. But uh, when when that manifest change comes about, um, that's going to impact a lot of extensions and ad. Uh, once again, we primarily think that's targeted at ad blockers. Yeah, and that'll that'll be bad because I've got. So you look at uh, what I do. I've got React Dev Tools in there. I've got Angular Dev Tools in there. I do have an ad blocker in there. Um, I've also got things like JSON Prettifier and I've got the Okta plugin, which we use for authentication. I've got uh, my password manager plugged in. Yep. And if they block all of that, uh, sorry, Google, but I'm going to Firefox. Yeah. that's There's, There is no way around it. That's a big deal. Yep. Yeah. I think this is why they've paused that for now. But uh, you can bet they... they, they <laughs> Google, they've got to get their, their, their ad information, right? <laughs> That's it. All right, moving on. Uh, we came across an article here discussing uh, what are the top three Google Cloud storage limitations. I didn't realize there were any storage limitations to GCS. Yeah, well, there is. Uh, I mean, there's, there's always limitations to every service, and, and GCS is no different from that. Um, if you look at the, the documentation, it does actually quite clearly state these limitations. Um, mm. Look, the three that they cover in this article is uh, the maximum supported object size is five tebibytes. Now, not terabytes, but tebibytes. Tebibytes? Yep. So for for those old old enough, like you and I, we all remember one kilobyte is 1,024 bytes and one megabyte is 1,024 kilobytes and and it keeps going. That's always been. Yeah, no, they changed that. So a terabyte (laughs) is now 1,000 gigabytes. A tebibyte 
is 1,024 gigabytes or gigabytes. I, I, I don't like it. I don't, I don't like think it I either. ever will like it. Nope. I don't no, like it either, but that's what I'm they've gonna, done. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shake my fist at clouds now. Yeah. I don't like it. <laughs> well, that was changed by the ISPs back in the day because they said, oh, you've yeah. got like a 300 gig limit. And it wasn't really a 300 gigabyte limit. It was this weird new definition of a gigabyte. Yeah. So anyway, uh, that was that's one of them. Uh, there's really no way around that storage limitation. It's a five... 5,024 gigabyte limit. Um, if you're storing databases in there, then you probably should use something else. Yeah. Um, bucket names have a limitation. They can't exceed th- 63 characters. Uh, again, that's in the docs. Um, you can get around this by putting periods as part of the bucket name, which extends it out to 222 characters. Uh, but then you start running into issues there. And then the last one that they talk about is the maximum number of uh, storage of principles. So IAM principles is limited to 100. Um, And the best way to get around this is to avoid using legacy IAM roles. So use groups, maybe? Yeah, use, well, (laughs) hang on, hang on. That's enough of that logic. (laughs) We want to do different things like current generation IAM roles increase this limit to 1500. Oh, you could do that as well. Yeah. <laughs> so that's that's the three top limitations of GCS. Again, all of them are documented fairly well in the in the uh, GCS docs. So not really a a mind blower. Um, but yeah, I mean it's 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 a good one for us to call out. I mean we we call out things like this occasionally on the show because hmm. you know when you if you if you're doing an if you're designing a solution or architecting something, you're not going to have all this in the back of your head, right? No. And it's it's good to be refreshed on some of these things every now and then. Um, so you know, I, I didn't know the sixty three character thing, and that's probably a good one to keep in the back of your head, right? All right, cool. Well, let's move on. Um, let's take a look at these security items. Oh boy, <laughs> oh boy. Um, oh dear. Yeah, there's some security items this week. Um, I'm not sure which order we tackle these in. Let's let's just do maybe maybe we tackle these in in the order of recap. Right, so let's recap uh, the Medibank situation. Yep. Um, Medibank, because um, remember the big hack on Medibank, uh, last and they year? refused to pay the hackers. Yeah, last year. Um, they've, of course, their um, annual reports come out, and it's got some numbers in there around how much it cost them. Um, they're saying it incurred. This is an article on IT News. Got to credit IT News because they, they're, always, they're pumping out some good stories lately. Uh, Medibank incurred seven point five million dollars in direct tech costs after cyber attack. Yeah, so this is, uh, the, the numbers they quote in here are, are pretty phenomenal. Um, in the Health Insurer's 2023 annual report that was uh, that was independently ordered by PwC, uh, it said that the $46.4 million expenses from the breach comp- uh, comprised $22 million of administration expenses. And I'm assuming that is all <sighs> investigation costs, uh, like um, yep. cloud forensic. Uh, sorry, security forensics. Uh, 15.6 million dollars in employee benefit expenses, 7.5 million in extra technology expenses, and 1.2 in marketing expenses. Uh, yeah, right. And you know what grabs me out of that? The 15.6 million in employee benefit expenses. What benefits? Are they giving to employees 
after a data breach? Well, and I don't know. The The article doesn't say, and I haven't actually read the annual annual report because, you know. It's, so, it's, so here's the thing. The only benefit that I can think of is redundancies. Well, it could possibly be that. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's that's the thing. So they sacked a bunch of people over it. That's that's how I read that. <laughs> that's a lot of money to be sacking people. That's a yeah. Well, I mean, if someone's been there for twenty years, they they could be getting over a million in you know a, a long you know it depends how they calculate the redundancy package. Yeah. But, you know, you you you, you sack twenty people that have been there for twenty years, and you're at twenty million bucks easy. Yeah. Well, that's right. Right. Um. So yeah, I mean, then then seven point five million in extra technology expenses. So they've gone out and they've. I can't imagine they've that's any cloud spending. That's probably on prem stuff. Yeah, yeah. They bought themselves like some new pallows and things like that. You know, they've they've up there, they're up there security subscriptions. But I uh, I look at it and go, okay, this is this is quantifiable information now on how much it costs to get breached mm. in this way. And and we all know they they came out initially and they they said, oh no, it only it's it's not it's not really that big a breach. And like we covered. This this topic four or five times I think, yeah, uh, and and this is how big a not very big breach is. It's fifty million yep. bucks. Fifty million bucks. Yep, yep. I could do a lot with and, fifty and million. They ha- there's been no fine issued yet either. No, that's there. So that's, that I penalty is pending. Yep, that's a that's a good one to point out because that penalty yep. could be twice that again. Yeah, easy. Um, all right, so while we're on the subject, uh, let's let's take a little bit of a look at uh, HWL Ebsworth, uh, a little catch up on what's happening there. HWL Ebsworth's uh, attack impacted 65 Australian government entities. 65. 65 government entities. So this doesn't yeah. count the private corporations that were also using HWL Ebsworth. Um, yep. So their four-month incident response effort uh, stemming from the attack uh, has now confirmed the incident for uh, the the scale of the incident for the first time. Uh, Air Marshal Darren Goldie, who's the National Cybersecurity Coordinator, has said in a statement that HWL Elbsworth is now able to manage its response without formal assistance from the Australian government. In total, coordinated Australian government assistance lasted sixteen weeks. So, I mean, there was there was a lot of government assistance there, and the reason for that. I mean, I'm speculating here, but I think the reason for that yeah. is very much a case of there was a lot of government entities that were involved um, in this breach data. Right. So this other government assistance group has come in and made sure all the I's were dotted and the T's were crossed. Yeah, by the looks of it, it, it might well be um, something like the Signals Directorate or something like that, like the yep. the the security nuts in the country, in the government have um, have come in and really helped uh, lead the forensic investigation on it. Right, and so that took 16 weeks, and so now we're at a point where HW Ebsworth can run it themselves from here on in. Yep, that's right. Um, yeah, so 65 government entities is a lot. Originally, it was reported as, and in, in, vertic- in air quotes here, more than 40 entities impacted, uh, but it seems that it was... Half of that again. Yeah. Okay. I mean, other than that, we don't really have much more information, but yeah, we'll certainly update as it comes through. Um, so just moving on, um, 
Dimix. <laughs> let's talk about let's talk about an actual new breach. Yeah. Dimix. New breach. Uh, new breach. Um, Dimix uh, is the largest uh, organization, the latest organization to disclose a data breach uh, with information up to eight hundred thirty-six thousand accounts compromised. Yeah, so this mm. this was interesting in that the, there was two numbers thro- thrown around in this article. Yes, so and that might not be correct. No, so it's yeah. 836,120 unique email addresses, but uh, the Have I Been Pwned uh, put the actual data breach at June 20 and said that the stolen data consists of 1.2 million customer records, of which yep. 836,000-ish are unique. Unique. Uh, it sounds to me that uh, have I been pwned? Uh, know more about this than Dimix do at the moment. Well, it's it's possible. Like they're monitoring the dark web constantly of of chats yep. over this. Uh, the the uh, managing director of of Dimix has come out and and uh, and said in a in a statement that uh, they are investigating it. Um, he's not downplaying it at all. Uh, he said we've mm. become aware that some of our customer information may have been compromised. We're still investigating this, but wanted to be proactive and warn you that there is a chance that this has occurred. While our investigation is ongoing and at the early stages, our cybersecurity experts have found evidence of discussions regarding our customer records being available on the dark web. Mm. So they they say that data that could be compromised is uh, date of birth, postal address, email address, mobile number, gender, membership details, such as your gold expiry date, uh, account status, and member-created date and card ranking. So. Yeah, so here's the thing, right? If you're putting your information into anything on the web, assume it's gone. Yeah. It's, it's just, it's gone, right? It's someone's got it, it's been exposed already. Just make that assumption. Um, you know, passwords, I know, I don't want to say, but I think your wife had a recent problem with passwords. Yeah. <laughs> um, and they always say, don't use the same passwords on the, on different websites because once it gets breached, then that, that just goes and they can just use the same password on another website. Use a password manager, change your passwords, have different passwords on different sites. Um, don't give the information if you don't want to, um, if you don't have to. For instance, my Facebook page and various other social media sites do not have my birth date. Yep. Right? Because um, that can be like the, the, the golden egg, right, to 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 fake your identity. Mm. Um, don't put it in if you don't have to. Yeah, that's right. And and yes, uh, my wife did have, a, have an issue with email. Uh, <laughs> look, she doesn't anymore. Um, yep. She made the, the critical error of using the same password on multiple different sites. And email is probably the worst one to use to, to use the same password on as another yeah. site because you think you're getting – your bank statements emailed to your email these days. You're getting your electricity bills and your um, your gas bills and your internet bills and all that sort of stuff. They're all getting emailed to that account. And if you're using that same password on all of those different services, now the hacker has your email address and they also have all of those passwords. Potentially 100 points of identity as well with all, all those files. There goes your identity. And they, yeah. they only have to search like it, uh, and luckily it wasn't yeah. this particular email address that, that got hacked, but uh, they've only got to search that email. I know my wife and I have, have sent, uh, emailed ourselves copies of passports or driver's licenses or whatnot. Um, I know I delete them all the time. Every time I've got yep. it, I, I've downloaded it, I delete it out of my email because I don't want it there. Yeah, uh, but 
that's just me. A lot of people don't do that. Oh, I should have a clean up. <laughs> <laughs> Feeling a bit guilty there, Maggie. Hackers, you didn't hear that. Actually, I've got the opposite problem. I um, many, many like you know, years ago, I uh, well, not that long ago, I uh, I went right. I'm going to come up with a new secure password, right? And I, I set it up on a few things, but I never got around to changing my email. This is before I started using Password Manager, and uh, almost immediately that that password was compromised i think it was either in the linkedin attack or the the adobe one and uh but i never changed it on my email yeah nice and it's like well okay that part the email one's the good one now <laughs> i'm gonna hang on to that uh this other one yeah i've gone around and changed it since but yeah it quickly got compromised yeah well the other one that i find odd is a lot of companies that uh, uh and this used to be there was a specific bank that i won't mention their name uh, and I don't know whether they still do this. I'm not a member of that bank anymore. But they only allowed to have – you were only allowed to have like 10 characters in your password or something. Uh, see, now that's just stupid. And, and and my password manager is set to a default of 20. Yeah. And it's uppercase, lowercase, numbers, and symbols. So, And it's just yep. random strings of garbage is what my passwords are. So oh, yeah. you, you've really got to be lucky that's to guess That's the way one. to go. It's, yep. No meaning behind it, it, nothing. The other thing that infuriates me is password forms, or forms with a password field that don't allow you to paste into the form, oh. right? Right Now, I don't know what knucklehead has come up with that thinking that's more secure, but all that's doing is encouraging you to use an easily remember password and type it in. That's right. It's an, it's an anti-pattern. It is 100% an anti-pattern. Right. Uh, and the other thing is, uh, I've seen this occasionally. You know, password uh, forms or pages that block the JavaScript that allow the the password manager to run, so they won't you won't insert it in there. Yep. Like, why? So <laughs> why? So I get this one. ING Bank does this on their internet banking. Yes, yes. Have, banks are horrible for yeah, it. You have an eight digit um, customer reference number that is your ID, and then you have a four digit PIN. Now, there's right. only 10,000 combinations of a four-digit pin. Yeah, yep. 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 Uh, that is, there's, there's, horrible. There's 20 yep. characters in my password, which is a lot more than 10,000. Infinitely more com- – and, and you're using special characters and up and down and all the rest of it. Yep. Yeah, yep, yep. So, yeah, it's yeah. it's crazy. Um, yeah, so oh, you can see how these breaches happen, right? Um. Well, one more item here uh, on security, um, and that is um, the NAB wants government-set security standards for cloud providers. Um, the big four banks suggested that mandatory minimum standards apply to all SaaS, cloud storage, and IT service providers doing business in Australia and storing or processing personal information. And I agree with this 100%. I really Absolutely. do. So yep. I think this stems from that issue where the uh, we covered it on the po- last podcast or the one before, I can't remember now, about the IT service provider that wouldn't release the information until the um, OAIC got in and went, you will hand it over. Yes. So yep. I think this that, has stemmed from that. Yeah, right. Okay. But, but here we are in Google Cloud. We've got the shared responsibility model. Mm-hmm. Now, isn't it fair to say that uh, a large portion of the security just comes down to the user? Well, yes, it is. Uh, but certainly where 
banks are concerned and where APRA is concerned, mm-hmm. uh, a large portion of that is the physical security of the infrastructure as well. And so this is where Google has it over the other providers because Google actually allows a um, customer or their nominated party to inspect the data center. Yeah, this is where I was going with this. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Which is which um, is something, obviously, as I said, the AWS and, and Microsoft, as far as I'm aware, do not do this. Um, I know AWS refuses to do it for quite a lot of the stuff. But, uh, but Google does allow it, and I, I had firsthand experience with that at a previous project where, where um, that was one of the requirements, and, and the Google financial services rep just went, yeah, sure, that's easy. We'll just we'll send the addendum out to you, and it's done. It's yeah, like, oh. yeah, we'll plan a site visit. Yeah. You know, come and have a look, yeah. Um, plus, we know that uh, getting away from physical security for a minute, um, the you know, the network security is is unparamount, mm. right? It's encryption layer on top of encryption layer. Um, the name of the encryption eludes me well, there is, at the there moment. Is, um, so uh, I did go through it quite in depth with that particular customer that I was talking about. Yeah. And there is yeah. about four different security layers inside of their networking itself. Like they use four different uh, security layers there. Just Ah, yes, I've seen a video on this. Mm. I might dig this up and put it in the show yep. notes. Yes, absolutely. Um, so we've already got a head start in that space. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it's, um, it's, it's a lot of, I think, for banks specifically or, or any sort of regulated provider like that um, in financial services industry, it's very much a case of encryption in transit, encryption in rest, the ability to specify your keys for the encryption to manage your own keys mm-hmm, if you need mm-hmm. to, um, and the ability to inspect the physical infrastructure when you need to or when APRA dictates that they must. So if APRA has a need to, they are, they are within their right as the regulator to inspect the infrastructure on which you run your, um, uh, and I can't remember the actual name of it, but the workloads that contain the, the private information. Yep. yep. Um, do you think we'll ever reach a point where APRA can sort of give some sort of Credential or pre-approval? Is that a thing now? Well, APRA you doesn't say- really approve anything. They uh, they only... So when you go to APRA... Yeah, with- but would, wouldn't it be easier just for APRA to say, oh, you're running your stuff on Google Cloud in, in Australia Southeast 1, Australia Southeast 2. We've looked at those data centers. They're all good. Well, wouldn't it be I think more than anything, APRA needs to come up with a, a standard blueprint of how a provider should run that in said cloud. So right. they should come up with a, you need to use this tooling or, or tooling that meets these requirements. And I'm yep. sure they do have something like this. I just, I'm not completely across yep. it. Um, and this is how we know that we can inspect Google stuff. So that automatically gets you a tick in that box. And we know yep. that Google has encryption in transit, encryption in rest. So that ticks those boxes. We yep, know yep, that you yep, can- yep. Here's the certifications it meets already. Yep. Yeah, we, tick all we those. We know yep, all yep, of those. Yep. Um, yep. All you need to do is ensure that your infrastructure layer that you're running meets these requirements. Yep, yep. Is there a checkbox there for unauthenticated APIs? That's what I want to know. <laughs> There's probably there probably, <laughs> probably <is>. not. <laughs> <laughs> but this these are the things you should not have. <laughs> no, that's right. But this step here is actually really interesting. So the big four have come out and said we want. Uh, 
an NAB suggestion to accomplish this um, this minimum security standard is to use the Australian Privacy Principle 11 um, to yes. take such steps that are reasonable in the circumstances to protect the information. Um, and it suggests that the steps could align with the Australian Signals Directorate's essential eight controls and be ratcheted up over time as the threat landscape evolves. So, I mean, that's setting some pretty serious precedents to start with. Like if they're saying this is the this is the level that we want to set the bar at, and that bar is pretty high already. Yeah. And then we want to ratchet that up over time. That's a yep. That's going to negate a lot of a lot of the smaller players out of financial services industry yeah. provision. Yeah. Um, this is is not unprecedented, though, right? Other industries have similar regulations from APRA. The article does say that the telecoms industry has been regulated along similar lines. Yeah. In the past. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, we, we all remember, uh, and Banky, you might have actually been still at Telstra at that point, where, um, <laughs> where, Telstra, where all uh, internet service providers in the country and, and, um, and carriage service providers in the country, so um, the likes of Telstra, had to set up a metadata recording si- system to record the metadata of telephone calls and what websites people visit and all that sort of infrastructure, and the government mandated that that must happen. Yes, yes. And uh, was it uh, Tony Abbott? Could, couldn't explain what metadata meant. No, yeah, yeah it was. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's data that's meta. I, yeah. I want you to record your stuff, all right? I don't know what it is, but I want it recorded. <laughs> Oh dear. All right then. Should we move on? Let's move on with the AI Wars. All right, just a quick one this week for the AI Wars. Um just a follow-up on what we've seen at next. Uh Google looks to make AI as simple as search. Um Google is now doing AI, or Google is now doing to AI what it did to the internet. Uh, Thomas Curian, uh, we are taking the sophistication of the AI model and putting it behind a simple interface called chat, which then lets you open up to every department, Thomas Curian says. Is this like the, the chat that Google, is this why they got rid of Google chat? Like the actual named <laughs> application so that they can reinvent it as an AI bot? <laughs> uh, look, uh, if you look at Bing, that's basically what you have now, yeah. right? There's a chat bar that appears in Bing. They're going to do the same thing, yeah. right? And, and Bart will back it. I, right? I, can't, I, can't, I can't vouch for that because I've never used Bing. Oh, I, I had a little play with it in the early days. Um, but that, that's what it will be. It'll allow you to just do search in simple language mm-hmm. and just just, uh, just to – like I had something the other day. I, I, was, I got sidetracked. I was watching some YouTube video and I wanted to know – how fast light would how far light would travel in a certain time or something like that and i thought i could do the maths on it or i could just actually type my query into bard and it would just tell me <laughs> that's true enough it told me right <laughs> that could be bothered working the maths out on that no <laughs> no because no, that's 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 some complex maths because you got to you got to convert kilometers a second and it's like millions of kilometers a second yeah that's right and you got 3600 in there yeah. somewhere i don't know it's maths i don't know um so yeah, I just typed it in the bar and it just told me. Yeah. But that's the sort of thing, right? Like, I'm not going to search 
if I had a particular, in that case, I had particular values, I wanted a particular result. Um, if I did a search, the chance that someone has actually done that, that could a straight text search could find it, it's pretty minuscule. But a language model could figure that out, yeah, right? And it does. And, 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 and look, you could- And it does, yeah. There could- uh, like if you just used the search feature in Google, you could have ended up with one of those widgets right up the top that does the conversions for you. Like if, you, if you're trying to convert, let's say, uh, miles per hour to kilometres an hour or, or, yeah, or okay. vice versa yep. because, you know, we, we're in the metric system um, and yep. you try to convert it to that other weird system that uses 1.6 of something. Um, <laughs> then, yeah, you get those little widgets up there and you can type in one yes. value and it'll give yep. you the other one. Um, but that's that is just an evolution of AI within search anyway. Yeah. Uh yeah. But I mean, that's just integrating a, a formula into it. But mm. this this kind of my particular request kind of went beyond that. I guess if they had a bespoke formula for that, then it would work. But um, no, it, it wasn't going to find anything. But the, but the language model solved it. So um, I think this is what we're going to see. Um, Thomas Curian's also saying we expect a number of people who can use AI to grow, just like it did when we simplified access to the internet and broadened it. So, yeah, this is going to open it up to everyone, right? Yeah, that's right. And, I mean, Duet AI is doing that now. So, Duet AI um, in Workspace and, and Vertex AI, which were both recently launched GA um, at Next. Uh, I've been using Duet AI for, for some months now as an inside tester, uh, and they're phenomenal. Like, it can write mm. full Terraform for you in a matter of seconds. Nice. Yeah. Um, nice. and, and you use it in um, workspace or in my case, I'm just using it in VS Code. So, yeah, quote from uh, Papu, who's the general manager of Google Workspace, says, it can help write emails, make presentations using different sources, and summarize what was said in a virtual meeting and even attend the meeting on the user's behalf. Yeah. Now, that is interesting. Oh, imagine how many meetings we could get out of Ian. Mate. Great. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go and set that up now. I'll, uh, I'll see you at all tomorrow's <laughs> meetings, eh? <laughs> but um, interestingly, they're also promoting as a, an advantage, and I kind of think it's a downside. The average user of Duet can typically write 30 to 40% more emails with more than 50% of the content generated by the model. Now, do we need more emails in our life? No. No, 100% not. I don't want an email. Like You can generate 30 to 40% more emails, Ian. Yeah, well, maybe, I, maybe I'm just going to write something that converts Duet to chatbot, and then it can just chat yeah. with people on my behalf. And this article does go on to say that what that means, it's, a, it's an hourly saving, right? An hourly saving. Now, so you'll have more time in the week because you're, you, you're doing more emails in a shorter period of time. Problem is... I don't think that's what's actually going to transpire. The expect a point in time will come. It's not going to be tomorrow. It might be in twenty years' time, where the expectation is that everyone will be using this, and your your output will be judged based on your ability to do this. Mm. And if you're not using this, and you're not packing in eight hours a day in generating thirty to forty percent more emails, then you're not doing your job efficiently. I think there's actually a risk there. That could I, I think that's that's true. And the other the other thing to consider is. And forget that this costs money. So much the same as uh, Open uh, ChatGPT costs, like their enterprise version costs you thirty bucks a, 
a user per month and mm. um, GitHub Copilot costs you 30 bucks a user per month. Duet AI also costs you 30 bucks per user per month. So, yeah. I mean, this is only going to be for people who want to spend that $30 a month to generate yep. the 30% more emails that they need to generate. Or Yeah, but 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 giving giving you know back in the day, giving an employee an email account, just an email account used to cost money. Oh yeah, of course. Giving an employee access to the Microsoft productivity suite that used to cost money. Still does. I can remember rolling out I can remember rolling out Office Six and I had to take note of who I'd rolled it out to and it was like a certain amount of dollars per per seat. Mm. Right? And it still does, right? So Office three six five, you've got a subscription there. This is just going to be rolled up in another subscription. I remember a company that I used to work at, they had this elaborate system where they used to put you in a certain group and it would give you access to those those applications. And then when someone else needed it, they took you out of the group and added someone else in. Yes, and it yes, it's like a over. pool. Yeah, yeah. It was like <laughs> yeah, we yeah. had ten ver- but- ten licenses for Adobe Creative Suite. Yep. Yeah, but now my point is it's now it's ubiquitous. Mm. Those tools are ubiquitous, right? Like it's just a dime a dozen. Everyone's got email addresses. Everyone's got office suites. You can get it for free, yeah. right? That will happen with this as well. Oh, eventually, I hope. Because right. I'm not paying thirty bucks a month. No, nah, <laughs> it, it'll it'll happen, right? It, it, the cost will be driven down so much that it'll just be included with everything else. We get an economy of scale. Nvidia will come out with some new chip, and uh, it'll just do everyone. Well, maybe the Ampere One. Know, <laughs> the Ampere One or yeah H two hundred or something I don't know. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, li- link in the show notes. Uh, just give you Curian's uh, thoughts on uh, what the status of AI is at the moment and while you're there, I'll, I'll also link uh, an article uh, or a video from CNBC with an interview with uh, Curian where he talks about Gen AI and Bard versus ChatGPT. Very, very interesting stuff. Yeah, I watched the first sort of 10 minutes of that uh, that interview, and he he's a very different person when he's interviewed one-on-one like that versus when yeah, he's up right. on stage and, and he's doing the big show of, of Google Next and how awesome Google Cloud is and all that. And then you look at him in this interview and he's a very mild-mannered, very softly spoken man who – who is very articulate in what he says. It's Yeah. They're very different but, personas. Yeah, I think he when he's in an interview like that, like a lot of these, you know, CEOs do, they have to be very measured with what they say mm-hmm. and they have to be very thoughtful and plan out what they say. So, you know, when they're when they're doing the big show, it's all planned. Yeah. Right. And then they can they can just go for it. Uh, and they've got the confidence that you know every word that they're saying has been pre approved. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but in an interview, they have to be very careful. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> all right. Well we might leave it up there. We might finish it up there. Hey, what do you reckon? I Ian? think so, mate. I think so. We've gone on and on today. Um, look, uh, don't forget about GCP Life Live. This, oh, so exciting. I'm getting goosebumps. This is our last recording. The next one will be our live episode. This has been such a while in the planning. It's two years of the show and episode 50 of the show. And thankfully, I did the numbers right about six months ago and we've landed on the right cadence. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> I was worried about that. Yeah, so come along to GCP Life Live, guys. Uh, I know there are a few people coming up from Melbourne for it and Ian of course you're coming down from Brisbane. 
Brisbane, yeah. so we're yeah. really happy about that. That's fantastic. Um, and look, while you're there, go to iTunes, write the show review. It'll really help the show out. Uh, you can contact the show, GCP life at kasna.com.au uh, we've got the website there soon to have a mastodon server and gcp life live on the 6th of october in the google developers studio which is on the ground floor of google at piemont um, hope to see you all there beautiful that's about that's about enough from me anything else from you Ian? no mate that's it I, i'm really looking forward to uh the 6th of october bring it on yep And we'll see you all there in person in a fortnight. Bye. Bye. All right. Let's do this woefully, woefully inadequately prepared show. <laughs> <laughs> Wing it. Cuff it. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> Welcome to GCP Life. Blah. Okay. Done this before. I've done this 48 times before. I can do it again.